Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. thankful that I get to continue this uh, summer road trip series. You know, Pastor Julia kicked the series off as we kind of talked about this misconception, this saying being Christian um, is easy. Being a Christian makes life easy, and, and, and we kind of broke that down. It's like, listen, it's, you know, with us preserving and enduring our faith, that's going to help us be prepared for when we are going to face those hard times. It's not a matter of if. And then Pastor Ben did a phenomenal job last week uh, talking about God only helps those who help themselves. You know, we're reminded if God has helped us that we too have the abilities to help others. And I'm so thankful that we're able to take this time in the summer to kind of go through these uh, misconceptions, these sayings, because just like on a road trip and you face setbacks, you face detours, you know, we experience that in our faith journey. And that's why we want to talk about uh, these various sayings that we might hear because they could uh, hold us back in uh, us growing and also how we're able to impact others in their faith journey. And so I thought it'd be really cool to just kind of start today by sharing uh, a road trip experience that I had. Uh, my family and I, we decided to go to Disney World. Now, there was 11 of us because I had family that came from Hawaii to visit us, and we were just like, oh, hey, let's go down to Disney World. And this was before the internet, so we were trying to discover a way, what's the cheapest way to get the whole family down, because our, not every 11 people can't fit in one of those caravans, um, Dodge caravans that we used to have, uh, and it was too expensive to fly, so we found the best way to go was taking a 24-hour one-way trip uh, train ride to Orlando, Florida. And it was, it was cool. It was like we, we stayed in this compartment. You know, we ate a lot. We played games. We slept a lot. And we finally got to Orlando, and we stayed in Kiss, Kissimmee in this ghetto hotel. And, and at the time, uh, in Disney World, there was only two parks, uh, Magical Kingdom and um, Epcot. And, you know, we went on the rides, ate the food, got pictures with the characters, or at least I think we did. Because these are all memories from my family and what they've told me because when my family went, I was two years old. Yes, very sad. Unfortunate. And it's not so unfortunate that my family and my parents took me when I was two years old. The, what's really sad, and this is the big unforgivable sin, is that they never took me back. <laughs> and to this day, I love my parents but I've yet to fully forgive them and let them forget, hey, you've never taken me back to Disney World because I have no memories. I have no, I'm sure there's pictures somewhere. Like I'm sure somebody's holding me on the Dumbo ride. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's a Dumbo ride there. I just don't remember. And I kind of share this story a little bit because that's kind of going a little bit into this Christian saying that we probably have all heard before or even we have said ourselves uh, this saying that we're talking about today is hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. And I feel like this is something that it's like we, we have a hard time uh, talking about today because it sounds right. It sounds biblical. You know, is that something, wow, that, why is that not from the Bible? It's not. It's nowhere in the Bible does it say that. But it sounds biblical because it's talking about, well, yeah, we should hate sin. We, should, we shouldn't be living a life of sin. If, if we have accepted Jesus Christ in our life, then we should live a life opposite of sin. So, yeah, hate the sin. That makes sense. And then love the sinner. Well, yeah, we're all sinners, so we should love one another. 
But because it's not biblical, it's like, then where did we actually get the saying from? The, the earliest that we are actually in, in the Bible, the closest thing that we see where we've gotten this, this saying from was found in Ezekiel 33, 11. It says in verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God states that he's not happy that the wicked will die. He wants everybody to know how much he loves us. That's why it says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, I am thanking God for sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for me. And I take comfort knowing that God loves us so much and that when we repent and we turn from a life of sin to a life that's leading to death and separation from God for all eternity, I'm thankful that God made a way for me. But also, God has made a way for those that have yet to recognize him as the one true God. So this saying, even though it may have some biblical foundation to it, where do we actually get this from? Where has it originated from? The earliest that we can find it is in 424 AD from a, a letter from St. Augustus to encourage nuns to, with love for mankind and hatred for sins. The next time that we, we see it, because with love for mankind... Hatred of sins, that's not actually the saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. What we can take from in 1929, Mahatma Gandhi in his writing said this, hate the sin, love the sinner. But listen to his full statement with it. Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. So here you have Gandhi who rightly observes that it is difficult to see someone else firstly as a sinner and to focus hating their sin without developing some level of disdain for the person. The saying either you have used, and I'll be the first one to admit, I have used the saying. When I was younger and I wasn't mature in my faith, I said this a lot. I said it to individuals as I tried to share with them faith. So a lot of us may have heard this, or maybe some of us have used this, used this before, but this saying can actually be detrimental of our own outlook of God's love and God's grace, not just for ourselves, but the way that we extend it to other people. So today, I just want to encourage us to come with an open heart today. And there may be something I say today that may be triggering for you. Maybe there's something, well, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Can, can I just encourage this today? Can we just have a conversation because I, I know I'll be the first one, but I'm not some biblical theologian or scholar, but I'm just literally taking from what God's actual word is saying today. But if we can be able to hear all of what, of what God's word says, that we can hopefully have a different perspective on, on what this saying is truly doing and maybe have the right perspective and the right saying and how we go, go about sharing Christ's love. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you again for who you are. God, I, I thank you for this opportunity to go along this journey to discover what your word actually says to, to love in the way that you love. And God, I just pray, Lord, with, with open hearts and open minds, God, that we can continue to be who you have called us to be. 
the sons and the daughters of Christ. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he shared the greatest commandment, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it is love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's a reason why Jesus didn't put in there instead of neighbor with sinner. Because when we change those words, well, now it just begins to lead to judgment. If I love you more as a sinner than a neighbor, then I'm bound to focus more on your sin and not, not you as a person. And now I have elevated myself above you. So when I view someone and identify them as a sinner, I start looking for all the things wrong with you. And perhaps without intending it, I'll be thinking about a relationship like this. Hey, listen, you are a sinner, but I graciously choose to love you anyway. How egotistical and self-righteous that comes off as. So it's important for us to understand that this statement, hate the sin, love the sinner, we also use it selectively. We pick and use it when we feel like it makes most sense. So those there, we know there, those that are, you know, uh, from the LGBTQ plus community, and, and we don't agree with their life choices, but we say, you know what, hey, hate the sin, love the sinner. You know, the past few weeks or years now, we've seen a lot of murder that's happening in our nation and, and a lot of evil across our world. And what they're doing, it's wrong. But you know what? I'm going I'm to hate their sin. But I'm going to love that sinner. Or maybe there's somebody you don't agree with their road versus Wade opinion and that being overturned. But you know what? I'm going to love the sin, hate the sinner. Maybe there's somebody that is literally dragging somebody on Facebook. I'm going to hate their sin, love the sinner. I have a family member who's unreliable and they're getting wasted every weekend. But you know what? I'm going to hate the sin, love the sinner. Oh, that person's wearing socks with Crocs. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Amen to that. We're selective and we pick, and somebody's like, I'm triggered. I was like, just, I'm only serious, it's okay. Um, you know, we, we have no issue saying this about somebody news who murders, but we would never say this about our spouse. Like, if I went to, to Megan, it's like, hey, honey, boo, you know, I hate your sin, but I still love you, you filthy sinner. It's like, that, that's awkward. It's awkward, and it's uncomfortable. And, and what it does, it, it puts this view of love, it puts conditions on it. And God loves unconditionally. And I, and, and I think for us, especially as Christians, we can, we can be very judgmental. And judgmentalness is not rooted out of God's love. You know, Barna shared this statistic. They asked a question to nine Christians and lapsed Christians, <coughs> excuse me, oh, sorry, um, lapsed Christians who are uh, basically people who identify as Christians, but they don't go to church often, and they have a relative or or a friend who prioritized going to church. And this question that Barna asked them was this, what would it take for you to talk about your faith? Now, this is the most important thing that we can do in our journey to discover God, is to ask these questions about what is it that we believe in. 
And, and a question like this can help somebody truly discover not only who God is, but who we are in him. And so when they asked this question to non-Christians and, and, and lapsed Christians, more than 60% said, I would talk about my faith if I knew that people would listen to me without judging me. The most important thing that so, someone to do to talk about their faith and potentially encounter Jesus, over 60% will not talk about because if they talk about, they're afraid that Christians will judge them. You know, for Christians, it's easy, us, for, easy for us to understand this statement, hate the sin, love the sinner. It makes a lot of sense it, to the degree, but for someone who is a non-believer, who is completely unchurched, and for someone who is even on the cuff of understand, understanding and wanting to discover who more of God is, this statement, hate the sin, love the sinner, can be very off-putting. And actually could be discouraging for somebody to come and want to have an encounter and experience with God. Because a statement like that isn't going to win the heart of an unbeliever. Especially when the majority of the human race is already concerned about being judged by Christians. And I think Christians, we get, we, we get a bad rap sometimes because of our judgmentalness. Jesus hits on judging others in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles with you or you have your Bible app, you want to follow along, uh, it's in the sermon notes as well. Uh, or we'll put the, uh, the verses up on the screen. But I would highly encourage you to follow along with us as we're, as we're breaking down uh, God's word today. But it starts in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When you look at the original Greek text, the word that's used here for judge is the word krino. Now, the word krino uh, has a couple of definitions, but in this context, in this verse alone, it's defined as not looking unfavorably on the character or the actions of others. So when you read that verse again, Jesus is saying, do not look unfavorably on the character or actions of others, or you too will be looked unfavorably at. And I think the best way to describe this is when we all drive. Because we know when we're driving, and there's somebody that's going faster than us, or there's somebody that's by us and they're wobbling because they're texting while they're driving, we begin to judge that person. Honking our horn, blasting them on Facebook. If, you were, if this is your license plate, I took a picture of you, you were driving too fast. We begin to judge. But we're judging them on a unfavorably on a life choice that they're making. Does it make what they're doing right? Absolutely not. But at the same time, we're looking at them unfavorably when we ourselves are doing things that we know that probably aren't right either. And I'm talking about, you know, when you do those running stops and you're not pausing for all three seconds. We know you go five miles over the speed limit to 10, 15, 20. You know who you are. It's easier to judge somebody else while neglecting to look at our own issues. And so when we do that, that's when Jesus is saying, you too will be judged. The same measure you use to judge someone, you will be judged with. Continue on in, in chapter 7, verse 3. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I feel like I can relate a lot to this verse right now. Over the past year and a half, I, I've been going to an eye specialist because we've discovered that I have something called Coates disease. And Coates disease, what it is, is you have blood vessels in your eye that begin to leak this fatty protein, this fatty tissue, and it begins to uh, disrupt and, and, and block your vision. So I, here, I actually have a picture I'll, I'll show you. I hope you don't get grossed out by this. But um, it's funny, like on the right side, is actually, or, or the left side, yeah, right side, my right, your left. On the, this is my good eye, my right eye. But then, and you can see, that's what a good eye is supposed to look like. But on my left side, your right side is my left eye. You have this massive amount of fatty tissue that's actually blocking my vision. And so, like, if I close my right eye, like, I can see, like, 50, 60% of this side, but I see nobody on that side. It's just this big black blur. And it's, it's, it's completely okay. It's, it's very rare. It happens like maybe 200 cases a year, uh, found predominantly in kids. Um, there, there's no way of discovering how you get it, and right now there's no cure for it. So right now I just keep going to the eye specialist, get laser shot in my eye, and needles, which is totally fun. Um, I'm completely kidding. It's terrible. Um, but, you know, hey, I can live with it. But, if, but through this time, I've been able to kind of research a lot about vision. Uh, and, and what researchers are saying is that your vision is your most dominant sense. Between 80-85% of perception, learning, and cognition are mediated through vision. So because the ultimate purpose of the visual process is to arrive at an appropriate motor and cognitive response. So when there is something that is hindering your perception, it is completely affecting your overall vision. Which begins to affect the rest of your mind, which affects your Cognitive responses. Your perception plays this huge role in how the rest of you functions. So when there's something wrong with your perception, the rest of you tries to function based on how you're able to perceive or view that something, but it's not working at the capacity that your vision is held to. So ultimately what's happening is your perception, now, which is your ultimate reality, but it's not the ultimate truth. So when you go back to this, this verse... You know, when you are trying to focus on somebody else's speck of sawdust, you guys ever cut a saw uh, or, or call, cut a plank, you know, sawdust goes fine, gets in your eyes if you're not wearing glasses, and you were so worried about the sawdust in somebody else's eye, when we got this big, heaping, giant plank coming out of our own eye. And the reason that sometimes we're not focusing on it is because of our perception is being skewed. And when our perception is skewed, we, we have this distorted look on what's actually reality. And where we see this to happen a lot of the times, when we have a skewed and distorted perception when it comes to sinners in our lives, or that we view as sinners, it makes us want to make other people earn what God has given to us freely. So what Jesus is, is trying to say is like, hey, don't look unfavorably on, on, on people's character or their life choices, or you too will be looked unfavorably. And then also in this passage, he is saying it's like, hey, your flaws are bigger than theirs. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. Your faults, 
your flaws that you're dealing that you're not working on right now is bigger than what that person's minuscule sawdust is. Some of us feel like, well, well, how's my sin, how's my flaws bigger than theirs? Because we as as humanity, we, we try to compare sins. We easily point out other people's sin all the while we're we're favoring our own. And we favor our sin by masking it, right? Like we, we mask greed by saying, oh, well, we're saving for the future. Or we, we, we mask uh, anger by calling it standing up for what we are passionate about. Or, or, we, or we mask pride in having a high self-esteem. You know, somebody who, who was big and, and boasting, especially before he, he came to the Christ, was Paul. Paul was known, he, he was a religious leader, he was persecuting and he was killing Christians and then he has this encounter with Jesus he has a complete 180 and he says this in Romans 3 and 22 and 24 this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ now I understand there is a massive difference between me murdering somebody and me uh, uh, lying to my wife. Both have different impacts. But in the eyes of God, there is no difference when meeting the criteria of being good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. God isn't talking about comparing sins. He's talking about a way of life. So we have to understand before we're, we're so quick to point out other people's flaws, we have to be able to deal with the big fall in our lives first. Jesus continues on in Matthew in verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We assume that Jesus is, is telling us that, well, we have pearls. And there are other people that they're the pigs who don't deserve the pearls that we have. And they can't handle these pearls that we have. So we choose not to associate with them. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this verse. You know, Jesus is talking with people who are very familiar with pigs. When you feed a pig, you know, you're going to feed them something that they're going to be able to eat. And one of the best examples that we get is actually through the uh, parable of the prodigal son. It, it says that he would have filled his belly with the husk or the pods, depending on which translation you read, that the pigs ate. Now, these husks, these pods, you know, they were like four inch to, to nine inch um, Curvy leaves that were filled with like this uh, legume. You know what legume is? Like a bean. It's kind of like pulpy substance. You know, they loved it. So that's what the farmers would be feeding the pigs. Now, Jesus isn't demeaning these people by calling them pigs. What Jesus is actually calling out is the owner of the pearls trying to feed a pig something that is not going to be beneficial to it. He, he's, the, the owners could care less what a pearl is because they're not going to understand the value of a pearl. They may think it's a pebble. And when you try to feed that to a pig, a pig could chew on it, maybe bust a tooth, and then it's going to get angry, and then it's going to come after you and tear you apart. See, what Jesus is trying, let me, let me give a different example. Maybe this might kind of hit a little bit more at home. In John chapter 8, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase this. In John chapter 8, Jesus is sitting in the temple. And 
he, he's teaching people amongst him, and here come the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they catch this woman in adultery. You, we all know what adultery is. She was caught doing the horizontal hula with somebody. And these religious leaders chose to drag this woman who was just caught in the act of adultery, to drag her in front of the public, in front of the temple, and throw her in front of Jesus in hoping to catch something against Jesus, to hold against him. And they're basically saying, hey, the law of Moses says she was committing adultery, she should be stoned. What say you? And there's a crowd that's coming around the Pharisees with stones ready to stone her ready to uphold what the law says. Because that's what is right. And at one point, Jesus stops what he's doing. He was writing in the sand, and he looks up and he says this. If any of you are without sin, cast the first stone. And in that moment, all you could hear was one stone drop after another, and one person leave the crowd until it's just Jesus and the adulterous woman. And Jesus said this to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Jesus declared, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. The religious leaders thought it was best in hating the sin but loving the sinner in demoralizing this woman in her most shameful and guilty place. And sometimes we as Christians think, well, that's, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be holding the truth. We need to be pushing it. Well, this is what God's word says. Well, what you're doing is wrong. And all that Jesus was able to do was to see her as God sees her, to not condemn her, but to encourage her to go and leave your life of sin. How many times have we acted in a scenario where we were led by what we thought was right over being led by God's grace? And I think what Jesus was ultimately trying to say to people with the illustration of the pearl and the pigs was this, that we need to stop throwing what we think are solutions at people without taking the time to actually figure out what they actually need. I think we, as, as the church, as the body of Christ, we need to make sure that God's love is leading us in how we lead others. God's love, you know, look, look at the, the ministry and the life of Jesus. Every time that he had an encounter with a sinner, he didn't immediately go to, well, the God's word says this, or you're doing this wrong. He called him friend. He built a relationship with them. He broke bread with them and got to know them as the individual. And that, that bridged the gap to break down walls, break down those walls of hurt or misunderstanding or the shame and allowed them to be able to hear the message of God's love and grace and forgiveness that is available for them and challenge them to leave the life of sin to then walking into the life of purpose. I 
more than anything today, I just want to encourage us how we truly love one another. And most importantly, how we truly love those that are unchurched, those that are unbelievers. We really have to love ourselves in the way that God has loved us. You know, Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, love God, but also love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God means to oppose everything that is not of him. Proverbs 8, Solomon says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I hate what's happening in our culture right now. Because I sometimes feel like culture is winning the next generation more than the church. And it makes me sad. It makes me upset. But I'm not upset at the people. I'm upset that me or, or, or the church as a whole that we're getting so focused on the wrong things when we need to be intentional and focused on helping the individuals. We can't get so caught up on their life choices or what they're doing or what they've done. And listen, I'm not telling us, church, that we need to, to look past our own convictions. I'm not telling us that, that we need to compromise our beliefs. I think it's one thing where we can tolerate individuals that may believe things differently than us, and they can tolerate that we may believe things different from them and we can still have a relationship. I think that's a good step. But I think going beyond that is really seeing past the choices and the behavior and the character and actually see them as a person loved by God. But if we struggle with that, then maybe we might be struggling to love ourselves. You know, before we even talk about loving others, I, I think sometimes we have to look in the mirror. Do we love ourselves? We're being challenged to love our neighbors like ourselves, but we may not be liking our neighbors because we're not liking what we see in the mirror. Because we're still carrying guilt. We're still carrying shame. You know, it's easy to accept that God loves us and God forgives us, but we have still yet to accept us forgiving ourselves and us loving ourselves. The greatest thing that we could ever do for our faith journey and for those around us is to embrace God's unconditional love. And to extend his unconditional love. I know there are so many unbelievers in our world. And not just our world. But in your world. Like around you. God is giving you an opportunity to be Christ. So that even though that they might have experienced judgment, even though that they probably have experienced hurts and offenses maybe from other jurors, other Christians, but from you, they're going to get the opportunity to experience what God's unconditional love really is. But in order for that to happen, we have to make sure that ourselves, our spirit, our soul, our mind, that we are speaking his forgiveness over us as well. Would you bow your heads with me?
Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you just for this opportunity to come together and to get into your word, Lord, and to just be challenged to have a deeper understanding of how your unconditional love isn't just for me, it isn't just for us, but it's for every person. No matter what their past is, no matter what sin, ultimate sin that they've committed, but God, that your love has been available for us and would your love rule in our hearts so that the words that we speak would lead people to you. That people would see in our character and our choices in life, no matter what we face in life, God, that they would be able to have an encounter experience with you. And God, that we will leave the judging to you. That we would allow you to be the one to, to convict and to condemn and to continue to lead people to experience your grace and your mercy that we need every single day. Because here's the thing, God, you are sovereign. You can handle that role. May we just completely give it to you. And will we just take on the responsibility of loving others in the way that you've loved us? 1 Peter 4, above all else, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Father, I just pray that before that we see somebody else and identify them as a sinner, that we would see them as the child of God that you see them. That they are a person who is in need of your unconditional love and grace. Just like every day we need your unconditional love and grace. And Father, may we continue to take back the, this next generation and the generations to come. That we will be led by your love. So that your truth may be revealed. We love you, Father. If there's anything that we are holding on to in this moment, sin, guilt, shame, conviction, whatever it may be, God, that we just surrender it now to you. And that we fully embrace your love, your unconditional love, your unconditional grace. God, you are sovereign and you are relentlessly pursuing us and humanity. God, may we be an extension of your unconditional love outside these doors, outside these walls, to those that we work with, to our family members and to our friends, that everywhere we go, that they know that they're not defined by their life choices, but God, they can be defined by who you see them as. We love you, God, and we thank you again for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.